Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. In the clean energy world, it seems like everybody is talking about virtual power plants right now. But the concept isn't new. It actually dates back almost 30 years to the late 1990s, when an energy economist outlined how a virtual utility could flexibly integrate distributed resources from third parties for the benefit of the grid. There was actually a symposium held in Saratoga Springs, New York, the result of four years of work on this concept. The term virtual power plant, or VPP, took hold in the early 2000s, and that's when pilot projects emerged in Europe that tied together combined heat and power systems, fuel cells, wind parks, and hydro plants into a top-down dispatchable system. And the software was really starting to get better at that time, and this was a demonstration that you could create really effective software to manage all these distributed systems. But in recent years, as rooftop solar, customer-sided batteries, electric cars, smart thermostats, and electric water heaters have made their way into millions of homes, and power electronics and software to control those assets has gotten way, way better, VPPs have taken on new shape. Some people in the industry, they don't love the term, preferring to use distributed power plants instead. But VPPs stuck, including at the U.S. Department of Energy. We accept it. We use it. Uh, we've moved on. So I can imagine a group of you in a conference room somewhere taking a vote about whether to use distributed power plants, <laughs> virtual power plants. Is, is that how it went forward? Someone banged the gavel and said, virtual power plants it is. It was a hallway conversation where, you know, we said, oh, man, I, I can just see the headlines now. You know, the haters are saying it's virtual. It's not real. We can't rely on it. We may have influence at the Department of Energy, but we didn't think we had so much influence. We could erase the term VPP from the market. Jen Downing is an engagement officer at the DOE's Loan Programs Office. That's the organization that provides debt financing to groundbreaking clean energy projects. Jen led a major effort last year to craft a plan for how the department can help the VPP market scale. And the agency has thrown support behind projects, including a $3 billion partial loan guarantee to Sonova for 568 megawatts of rooftop solar and batteries that are tied together. There are a couple reasons why DOE is focused on this slice of the industry. One is that all the enabling tech is already here, or mostly here, today. And the other is that we're facing a dramatic upswing in load on the U.S. grid. Now, we are expecting peak demand to rise and rise pretty consistently. So between now and 2030, we're roughly expecting to add about 60 gigawatts of peak demand. At the same time, there's a lot of old coal power generation coming offline to the tune of potentially over 150 gigawatts of capacity. That adds up to 200 gigawatts of peak demand by the end of the decade. Now, there are many ways to serve it, with utility-scale solar and wind paired with storage, plus geothermal, nuclear, hydro, but it might not be enough. We're going to need clean firm. We're going to need more transmission capacity to transport that electricity. But one way to address that increase in peak is to use distributed energy resources to either serve that peak locally or to shift that peak outside of peak hours. And so that's where VPPs come in. This surge in demand is bringing a lot more urgency to the conversation around turning distributed energy systems into dispatchable power plants. VPPs aren't just a cool technical concept. They're a resource that's getting bigger every day, and the health of the grid may depend on them. They're taking these distributed resources that are increasingly added to the grid 
anyway, right, as people are buying EVs and installing rooftop solar and batteries and creating, you know, a grid-scale, grid-quality resource for utilities and grid operators to tap into. If we want any chance of building a grid powered by 100% zero-carbon resources and do it affordably and reliably, we need to triple capacity of VPPs. Distributed resources are ready, but orchestrating them requires a much more serious commitment from utilities and grid operators and a continued evolution in the VPP business model. People misunderstand the word virtual to mean, you know, not real. When these are hard assets on the grid, it's not phone calls anymore. It's software integrations and it's large aggregations of small resources that really add up to something very valuable. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a conversation with Jen Downing of the Department of Energy on the different ways that virtual power plants are getting built and the need to build way, way more. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. To understand the potential benefits of virtual power plants, it's helpful to compare them with the status quo. So to frame out our conversation, Jen and I walked through two different scenarios for utilities that are facing new loads, maybe from a lot of EVs or a data center or new manufacturing plants. And we started with an example of a vertically integrated utility that owns power plants, poles, and wires. And this utility decides that it will meet the new demands on the system the same way it always does, with a peaking power plant that burns fossil gas. So I think the traditional approach is let's add peaking capacity. They're going to need the transmission and distribution line capacity and all of the distribution equipment, substations, feeders, transformers, et cetera, to handle that new peak. And that's a lot of investment and, you know, a timeline associated with procuring all of that equipment and siting it and installing it as well. That also means that if you are serving higher peaks without doing anything to smooth that load, if you look at the average utilization of your asset base, you know, that peaker plant may, may turn on for 5%, maybe 10% of hours of the year. And you're increasing the capacity of your transmission distribution lines to serve that higher peak. But then on average across the year, they're running at maybe 20, 25% utilization rates. It's really inefficient. I mean, we've spent a trillion dollars or so, roughly, <laughs> uh, rounding, rounding that number, uh, to build and maintain the grid that we have. You know, in any other context, any other industry, we would want to maximize uptime of that machine, right? Why do we think about our grid any differently? What's the second utility doing that is investing in distributed power plants or virtual power plants? Walk me through that potential scenario. Sure. So a utility who wants to explore the potential for a virtual power plant to serve that increase in demand, they would take a look at the distributed energy resources that the DERs that are already on their grid, 
And they may also forecast adoption rates. And what that looks like is, you know, taking a look at your commercial industrial base, who has flexible load, that's, you know, pretty well understood kind of sector by sector. You would look at EV adoption rates. You'd look at rooftop solar. You know, the DOE's national labs have tools to allow you to kind of forecast adoption rates and understand uh, what types of assets are on the grid. And they would look at what kind of capacity can I get from these distributed resources? And then they would consider, okay, well, how am I going to orchestrate that? So utility could you know, do what National Grid and Eversource are doing in New England and through their Connected Solutions program. And this is, you know, what's known as a bring-your-own-device program. They say, hey, as long as you have this set of brands of smart thermostat or of uh, water heater or of battery, you can enroll in our program and we'll pay you for shaving peak. And through Connected Solutions, those uh, utilities have access to megawatts of capacity that help them shave peak so that they are less reliant. In this case, it would be, you know, on ISO New England's energy markets on peaker plants. And then what are the cost and reliability outcomes for these different scenarios? The utility choosing the peaker plant invests in the concrete and steel in the ground. And they are investing in the transmission lines and they're paying for the poles and wires. They are paying for natural gas fuel every time they need to burn it. On the other hand, the utility who is choosing the virtual power plant, it could be 60% cheaper overall. This is based on a Brattle study that was done. Great study, by the way. Uh, and I think what's striking is, A, the savings potential for a utility Procuring peaking capacity from a VPP can be 60% cheaper than procuring it from a natural gas peaker plant. But what's even more striking is that the money that is spent on virtual power plants, the majority of those costs are actually participant incentives. So yes, you need the implementation costs, the design, there's a lot of software implementation involved, the integration of different IT systems, but the majority of the cost, if you kind of look at that cost bar, is in paying either on a per kilowatt hour basis or a per kilowatt of capacity basis, paying consumers and compensating them for, you know, contributing a little bit of the flexible capacity of their devices to this clean grid resource. I want to get into the different flavors of virtual power plants in the U.S. And in your liftoff report, um, the Department of Energy does take a broad view of what a VPP is. And so can you can we walk through some of the different types of VPPs around the country and how they speak to the, the, the reason why you took this broad approach to defining the market? So, um, I'd, I'd love to like understand the, the different categories of VPP that you're seeing being built right now. Of course. Uh, you know, I like to say that the term VPP is kind of like the term sandwich. There are lots of different kinds. The, they're full of different ingredients and they serve lots of different purposes. So uh, I'll walk through a couple examples. And there is, as you mentioned, lots of variation in virtual power plants. You could slice and dice the categories in lots of different ways. I think the easiest way to understand it is kind of slicing the categories by types of DERs. So a few examples. You have Solar and storage virtual power plants. You know, clean energy generation along with storage on a distributed basis. 
A good example of this would be, you know, Sunrun. And uh, they participate in many different ways across the country in different markets with utilities. But, you know, they were uh, the first to bid VPP capacity into a wholesale market. They bid capacity into ISO New England in 2019 uh, and then delivered that energy uh, in 2022. So good example of solar plus storage, virtual power plant, selling into the wholesale market. Another example would be pure storage VPPs. Examples here would be, you know, Swell has a battery VPP in Hawaii that's made up of thousands of behind-the-meter batteries. They integrate with Hawaii Electric to orchestrate battery cycling on almost a daily basis. They charge when the sun is up. They dispatch during peak evening hours, and they also provide fast frequency response. And that really supports Hawaiian Electric's operations uh, overall. Another example of a pure battery VPP is what Green Mountain Power is doing uh, with their batteries, where they have chosen to offer batteries to their customers at a low cost instead of procuring that capacity from peaker plants. And they've saved, Green Mountain Power has saved millions of dollars um, and provided backup power for their customers while increasing the resilience of their grid. Another type of example of VPP is managed EV charging. So essentially the VPP provider reschedules the charging of your EV to smooth that load over time. So an example of this here might be, you know, WeaveGrid is a VPP that provides managed EV charging programs. They're working with utilities like PG&E in California, uh, Salt River Project, to help reduce strain on their distribution systems um, and smooth that load. Other examples that are more traditional would be you know, commercial and industrial flexible demand. VPPs like CPower, Voltus, AutoGrid, Virtual Peaker, they are orchestrating flexible demand for peak shifting. And then you have smart thermostat programs. Uh, you know, lots of hardware players are, are getting involved here, like Google Nest or Ecobee. Um, and then water heaters as well. So if we take this broad definition of VPPs that DOE has outlined, which is an aggregation of these distributed resources, which includes, as you have said, solar, behind-the-meter batteries, electric vehicles and chargers, water heaters, smart buildings controls, CNI loads, um, and, and you're orchestrating all these DERs together, what, what kind of capacity do we have in this country? Well, depending on how you define it, uh, we have about 30 to 60 gigawatts of capacity in VPPs today. Why that wide variation? That's huge. What, what, what changes in definition get, brings you from 30 to 60 gigawatts? Uh, well, we took a look at numbers across utilities and their demand response programs that was around between 25 and 30 gigawatts. We also looked at demand response operating in wholesale markets, and that was also around 25 to 30 gigawatts. And we know that there's a bit of double counting there. At the same time, it doesn't capture everything. And because if you have these kind of ongoing flexibility programs that aren't categorized as DR, uh, we knew that the data wasn't capturing everything. So 30 to 60 gigawatts was our, our kind of best estimate. And how much do we actually need to meet the expected load growth that's coming? Well, we have the need 
to serve 200 gigawatts of new peak demand between now and 2030. And at the same time, we have an incredible amount of DER capacity coming online. So, and I can put some numbers to that in a second. You know, what that adds up to is an enormous opportunity for that DER capacity to be aggregated into VPPs to serve that peak demand. Now, we're not saying we're going to get every last smart thermostat, every last battery, right? But if we can triple the capacity of VPPs between now and 2030, we could serve 10 to 20% of peak load nationally through virtual power plants. And if we did that, because they are a lower cost solution, we'd be saving about $10 billion per year. Okay, so then do we actually have the distributed energy resource capacity to support all that? We will. We are about to experience a tsunami of DER adoption across the United States. And the way we think about that is across three different categories of DERs, those that generate electricity. So think, you know, rooftop solar or uh, fuel-based generators. DERs that consume electricity at flexible times. So think, you know, EV chargers or commercial industrial loads or electric water heaters. And then DERs that store electricity. So behind the meter batteries or even EVs. With these DERs, we are experiencing a higher and higher capacity addition every year. So with DERs that generate electricity, we're getting about 20 gigawatts added to the grid each year. Uh, In 2025, that's going to increase to about 35 gigawatts added to the grid by 2030. If you look about, and that's nameplate, right? If you look at flexible demand of electricity, we're adding about four to six gigawatts of flexible demand to the grid each year in the form of smart thermostats, water heaters, and commercial and industrial load. Now, roughly, you know, four to six gigawatts of flexible demand is the equivalent of about 50 peakers worth of flexible supply per year added. And then you have about five to 15 growing to about 25 gigawatt hours of behind the meter battery capacity added to the grid each year uh, between now and 2030. Now those are enormous numbers, but they pale in comparison when you take a look at the capacity coming online in the form of EV chargers and EV batteries. So between now and 2030, we're adding roughly 20 to 90 gigawatts of charger demand per year. And on the battery capacity side, we're adding hundreds of gigawatt hours of capacity. Now, to be clear, not every car is plugged in all the time. And when they are plugged in, they're not always charging. And not all of that charging is flexible to be shifted over time, right? You stop at a you know, Tesla supercharger uh, on a road trip. You're not going to want to wait an hour because there's a grid event. But even if a fraction of that capacity is available to virtual power plants, that's an enormous amount of capacity uh, that could be used to make the grid more efficient. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. 
By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. I want to talk about um, how these services are going to be controlled and bid into the market, but I'm kind of interested generally about the utility landscape. If we've got all these DERs coming online and we've got all this potential um, to serve this load more efficiently. If we go back to the tale of two utilities that we outlined in the beginning of this conversation, certainly there are utilities that are sort of thinking about procurement. They're building pilots. They're learning from those pilots. But there are a ton that if you look at their procurement plans, like they just want to build a bunch of new gas plants. And I'm curious if you can characterize the industry broadly, like how much of the industry is thinking about VPPs and its procure, future procurements and how much, how many of them are just like ignoring it? <laughs> Definitely a spectrum. We have somewhere around 5,000 different utilities or load-serving entities across the United States. And you know, some are more forward-thinking and sophisticated. Others, you know, as, as you mentioned, want to stick to traditional uh, tools in their toolkit. I'll mention a couple examples of the forward thinkers. And, you know, this isn't a DOE endorsement. This isn't, you know, things I've picked up in our LPO pipeline, but it's just through our, through my conversations uh, with utilities in writing the liftoff report, have uh, seen a lot of great leadership um, across the country. So different forward thinking utilities are taking different approaches to implementing VPPs. And you're seeing a lot of uh, different partnerships and different business models. You might have a utility who wants to procure VPP capacity in a similar way that they would procure peaking capacity from a peaker plant. And so sometimes this is referred to as, you know, a turnkey VPP where utility issues an RFP that says, hey, give me this many megawatts. It needs to deliver on these hours of the day. And then it's up to a provider to find that load on the grid or work with customers who want to adopt distributed energy resources and give them the incentives to do so. You have other utilities who are building programs in-house where they are signing up the customers themselves. They may be working with their state energy offices who are giving incentives for adopting clean devices. I think what's happening in Massachusetts is actually a really interesting example. I'll I'll name names here, and this isn't a DOE endorsement, but you have you know National Grid, a big investor-owned utility. They've built their connected solutions VPP, which is a bring-your-own device program. The Massachusetts government offers customers discounts or cheap financing for things like smart water heaters and batteries that can then enroll in the Connected Solutions program. And then you have the Massachusetts regulator, the DPU, running what they call their Clean Peak program that offers compensation for shaving peak. 
And they have a distribution circuit multiplier where if you use DERs on constrained circuits to shave that peak, you get double the compensation. So there you're actually getting the locational value of the DER on the grid in addition to the bulk power system value of avoiding peakers, you know, Massachusetts having clean energy goals that helps them reduce emissions. And the utilities, their role is to actually orchestrate the VPP in line with how they're operating um, the grid itself. Let's talk about the point of control for these virtual power plants. Like, will there be one dominant point of control? And I'm thinking about two different scenarios, one where the utility controls the devices and the other is as the aggregators are are bidding these assets together and then bidding them into wholesale markets when eventual rules come together in wholesale markets. Um, Do you see either of those points of control dominating in the future? It is interesting. The way that I think about the dichotomy that you set up is, will VPPs sell to utilities, right? If I'm Voltus, C-Power, Virtual Peaker, Swell, it is my best bet to write a bilateral contract with a utility or is my best bet to bid into a wholesale market that has implemented for quarter 2222 i think when you have virtual power plants bidding into wholesale markets and earning a price that represents the value to the bulk power system it's an incomplete price because it's not taking a, a it's not taking account of the value to the distribution grid. And when you have a utility contracting with a virtual power plant, a distribution utility, they can take into account what the value is of deferring investment in a substation because they can flex the demand behind that substation, right? And so you're getting not only the avoided uh, peaking power cost at the wholesale level, you're also getting the value of deferring an investment in your distribution grid. So I think when it comes to you know where virtual power plants will succeed in the market, right now you have participation in wholesale markets because as you know a straightforward uh, way to bid into basically an auction. And it's a bit more cumbersome to write a bilateral agreement utility by utility when we have thousands across the country. But that's where the real value lies. And so I think what you'll end up seeing is utilities recognizing the value that they can get out of these VPPs and uh, procuring uh, VPPs directly. Now, will the utility be you know, hitting the button on every individual battery? I don't think it's, you know, in their core competency to be optimizing around customer experience. You know, they want utility scale resources. And so you'll see utilities contracting with these platform players who have lots of experience managing heterogeneous portfolios of assets, almost like playing Tetris, right, with flexible loads of different shapes and sizes and, you know, fitting them all together into, you know, one brick that a utility can choose just in the same way that they, you know, their utilities traders would choose a utility scale asset. 
So the uh, the simple answer is it depends. <laughs> And you you mentioned, which is obviously the case in something this nuanced and complicated. Um, you did mention FERC Order two 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 two, which is really important here. Um, all the way back in twenty twenty, FERC issued this order, and it basically said that regional grid operators n- need to be able to create rules that allow distributed resources, all the stuff we've been talking about can bid into these wholesale markets. And it's up to the independent system operators to implement. And so that could help VPP providers offer these services on a regional level. But the ISOs have been slow in creating the rules of engagement here. So I'm just curious, like, where we are regionally with adoption of FERC Order 2222? And what are the consequences if if it's really slow to roll out, I mean, some are delaying um, and saying it's really complicated. And and then if we do get it right and we start to see sort of um, the rules come together, what's the upside if if they meet the order? Yeah, I think at the very kind of basic fundamentals, when you're allowing VPPs to participate in your markets, you have more supply. So that's you know supply of capacity where you have capacity markets. It's supply of energy. It's supply of ancillary services. And that will bring down prices uh, for any given level of demand, right? That's why, you know, given the capacity of DERs coming online uh, in the upcoming decade, given the capabilities that VPPs have to orchestrate that into reliable resources, the Order 2222 promises to bring that capacity to bulk power systems to increase the reliability um, and resource adequacy of the grid. Now, different ISOs and RTOs are writing different rules and implementing that order on different timelines. And they've cited various challenges that are region-specific, right? You have MISO saying that they have multi-year timelines for the IT systems that need to be upgraded to implement this. Uh, You have New York ISO saying, you know, we don't have the staff capacity to register large numbers of very small DERs, so we're setting a minimum size there. And those challenges, you know, it's going to take region-specific resources and solutions to overcome those barriers, but it's a very, it's very much a live conversation. You know, as of October, you had FERC going to MISO saying, hey, you know, sharpen your pencils on your target implementation date. Uh, And I think, you know, we're still waiting on news for uh, revisions to their plans. One thing I would like to see is more inclusive, but also more consistent rules across um, ISOs and RTOs. I mean, it's pie in the sky and they all manage their markets differently. But I was talking to one VPP provider who said, you know, I have 16 different programs across the country and I can't staff my program managers across them because they are so different. So where do you think all the innovations in this industry are going to come from? Are they going to be largely technical? Are they going to be regulatory and enabling a lot of the, the you know the bidding of these projects? Will they be around customer acquisition and enrollment? Where do you see the most innovations happening right now? It really is coming from all angles. I think what's right in front of us from DOE's perspective is the regulatory innovation, I'll say, and I'll, I'll, I'll say a bit more about that. But I think what I'm most excited about is what's a little bit further afield from DOE is the uh, consumer experience. So on the regulatory side, there is a long list of 
improved regulatory measures that we're seeing utility regulators in particular adopt. So right now, a minority of states are doing integrated distribution system planning, where they're taking a look at, you know, what capacity they have on their distribution systems in uh, relation to the bulk power system needs. But more and more states are adopting that. They're doing more DER adoption to understand those potential resources. You also have performance-based regulation or performance-based rate making, where commissions are realizing that the utility business model of compensating CapEx spending with maybe a 7 to 9% uh, margin and passing through OPEX at cost to the consumer does not give utilities the right incentives to choose low-cost options such as VPPs. And so you have kind of innovation happening within commissions who are uh, really better aligning utility financial incentives with uh, what is optimal for the system. But when it comes to other innovations that are really going to transform this market, you have to look at what's happening among consumers. The VPP companies who are enrolling these customers are optimizing consumer experience, so this is just frictionless for them. And I think what I'm really excited about is for customers to, in a very low-effort way, start to optimize when their car charges or when their water heater heats back up the hot water after they take a shower or thinking about batteries for backup power instead of a generator because with you know a simple app on their phone they are notified of all of the savings that you know the VPP company has achieved for them and that's great and it offsets the upfront purchase co- purchase price i think that you know co- consumers will be interacting with their energy usage in in new ways that saves them money, decarbonizes the grid, and, and, and makes the entire system more efficient. And so the big question is, what does commercial liftoff look like? You know, if we look out to 2030, what's, what is a healthy, thriving VPP market in your view? Well, it definitely means more capacity. I do think we have the potential to manage 20% of peak demand with VPPs. And so what that megawatt or gigawatt number looks like for every individual utility is going to be different based on their needs, based on the DER capacity. But I think qualitatively, what commercial liftoff looks like for VPPs is, you know, one, it's accessible for all communities. You know, not just EV owners and rooftop solar owners, but anyone with a, a water heater or electric heat and a smart thermostat can be participating in these programs because they are so widely implemented by utilities. Now, what does that mean on the utility side? It means that utilities are looking at VPPs on the same you know, menu of options when they are looking at investing in distribution system upgrades, investing in you know, peaking capacity, uh, you know, building a new transmission line. They're always taking a look at what they can be doing on the demand flexibility side. And then you have to go upstream of utilities to what's happening on the regulatory side where you have the right planning requirements in place, you have the right financial incentives for utilities. And what all that adds up to is electrification, you know, progressing and increasing without delay while we decarbonize the grid and use the existing assets on the grid more efficiently and take advantage of the resources that consumers are already spending on. Jen Downing, Engagement Officer at the DOE Loan Programs Office and VPP aficionado. Thank you so much for breaking this all down for us. Thank you so much, Stephen. I mean, it's such an exciting time to be working in clean energy, but 
in particular, it's an exciting time to be working in VPPs. So I hope I got, I hope I got your listeners excited as well. That's going to do it for the show. The Carbon Copy is a production of Latitude Media. It's produced and written by me, and Sean Marquand is our technical director. He mixes the show and wrote our theme song. Go to latitudemedia.com. You will find a transcript of this show and all our back catalog episodes, uh, show notes with links, and you can just get all our stories that inform our coverage. We've got a ton of stuff going up every single day, and you can sign up for our newsletter to get it compiled in your email box. We're supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy. Learn more about their portfolio and investment strategy at preludeventures.com. And uh, spread the word about the show anywhere you spread the word about things. (laughs) Uh, Whatever social media that you're using, we're active on LinkedIn and X. And I know people are moving over to Blue Sky and Wherever you are having conversations, we would love to be a part of it. We will catch you next week. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Carbon Copy.